open up with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 16 through 24. there's anything needed more in our society, in our culture, in our churches, in our families, in our individual lives, it is the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to start in verse 16, read all the way through verse 24, and then we will just go about doing what we do, explaining the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit, applying it to our lives. Holy Spirit, make our hearts receptive and our bodies able. Apostle Paul. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's holy word. I suspect that if you're here this morning, it's because of spiritual reasons. You may not call it spiritual reasons. You might have a list of other more surface reasons that are just as valid as any other. But so much that underlies our surface reasons and our hidden motives and actions are really very spiritual, if you noticed. There's always a reason why we do what we do. There's always a lure. There's always something attached to a deeper part of our soul that can very accurately explain a lot of things, hundreds of things that we do that seem in that moment to be fairly tedious and normal and mundane. But we are very spiritual beings. So if you're perhaps not a Christian, you're just visiting, you're just curious or whatnot, maybe someone dragged you out of your home, knocked on your door and pulled you into this theater against your will, You're just here to listen. Perhaps there's something in there somewhere deep down. It's like an itch or an emptiness, something that you are constantly trying to fill. That's spiritual. Maybe you are a Christian. You've already scratched that itch, as you might call it, but there's just something more that you want. You, You could call it a number of things. You want to grow. 
you want to go deeper, you want more. There's a bunch of terminology we apply to that very spiritual thing. Regardless of why you're here, I'm betting that many of the reasons have spiritual connotations. And that's good. I'm glad you're here. Paul, within two verses, begins to scratch that itch. And he does far more than scratch the itch. He goes beyond the skin into the deepest parts of your innermost being. As we become introduced to a very fundamental battle going on within everybody in this room, a battle that he refers to as the flesh and the spirit, a battle that takes place in anyone who desires to follow Jesus. And when Paul uses this word, there's really two words going on in the middle of you know, this, this paragraph, flesh and the spirit. Whenever Paul uses the word flesh, he means it with very accurate and precise terminology, okay? He's one of the ones who uses the word flesh more than anyone. It's like a Pauline terminology. He loves using flesh. Now, we could get a little mixed up if we don't understand what he's using it for because we have our own connotations. You might read flesh and, you know, you've been, uh, uh, maybe grew up in the church and maybe by your cultural understanding, flesh just means sexual uh, stuff, you know? So you always hear in these types of verses, the Bible is all about, uh, you know, uh, no sexuality, no sexuality, no sexuality. That's your connotation of the flesh. Now, the flesh refers to sexual things, but also so much more. Or maybe you hear flesh quite literally, and you hear uh, you know, flesh and blood and bones and skin and knuckles and forehead and hair. And whenever you hear Paul's rants against the flesh, you're like, gosh, what is he doesn't want me to take care of myself, and maybe you, you make that bifurcation in your own mind. The Bible is all about spiritual things and not about material or physical things, and you couldn't be farther away from the truth. The Bible has an entire beautiful theology of the body and the created order. When Paul refers to the flesh, he's using it specifically to speak of something. It does refer to the body. It covers that and subsequently our sexuality, but also so much more. We could think of it as the realm of the physical body, which includes, among many things, your actions, your behaviors, and the habits that you develop from doing those actions and behaviors. You could think of it, I love, uh, Dallas Willard would put it this way, I love how he puts it, he says, it's your own personal kingdom. So if you have a will that you've been given by God in order to make decisions, those decisions have to be executed in some form. Where do they get, where do they get carried out? Through your body. Your decisions get carried out through actions and your actions get solidified through habits. Your body, the physical realm, is your own personal kingdom where you can exercise your God-given authority. Now the spirit, in this case, comes into play because something went wrong with the flesh. See, we were created from the very beginning for our flesh to be subservient to our will. We were created to have a renewed will, a will that was, uh, with all of its attention, focused on God, doing things that reflected the glory of God, carrying that glory out into the body, okay? 
something flip-flopped, sin entered into the world, those things switched. And now it's not the flesh serving the heart, it's now the flesh ruling the heart. You might understand this when you're caught in a habitual sense of sin. You're like, I want to do the right thing. My heart wants to do the right thing. My body cannot do it. I can't actually summon up the actions or the right habits to do so. It's been flopped. And so Paul brings in another element, the spirit. The spirit in this case, the Holy Spirit, but specifically the reborn heart under the influence of the Holy Spirit, okay? So now... The heart has been made new to the things of God. And what Paul is referring right here, there's there's uh, one of the prime differences between a Christian and a non-Christian, is now the heart has been made alive to the things of God so that you do not hate those things, but you now love them. But now, as Paul is going uh, going to enlighten us to, in verses 16 and 17, he speaks of both the flesh and the spirit in close proximity to one another in the life of the Christian. Where your heart and your flesh coexist together and they collide. The flesh was made to serve the heart. In the non-Christian, those two things have been switched because of sin. When your heart has been reborn, your heart is now in tune with the things of heaven, but it is now in a lifelong fight with the flesh. That's why you could be a born-again believer, love the things of God, love his kingdom, want to follow Jesus, and struggle day in and day out with sin. Because your heart has been reborn, but your body is still carrying the lingering effects of bad habits, the flesh. And it doesn't go away. Paul says these two things are opposed to each other in those verses. And he's using it in the continuous sense. In other words, it doesn't stop. It is a a continual battle between these two things within you. And they keep you from doing what you want to do. In other words, Christian life is not a passive journey. It's not something, when we speak of being being led by the Spirit, it's not like just kind of standing there in neutral, hoping that he catches your your sails. It's not a passive journey. There is a, a fight within you. It is a life you are entering into by the gospel, which... Force, uh, which includes forces within you that are in direct and constant friction and even collision. That's why Jesus would later say to his disciples, do this. However, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, the Christian life of maturity, as we've been looking at what it looks like to grow and to move forward in our Christian faith, it looks like constantly giving room to the Holy Spirit, giving space to him, which we're going to talk about. And simultaneously, in doing so, as we give space to the Holy Spirit, we are teaching the flesh to submit to the heart as it was meant to do. Get in your place, flesh. You were meant to serve the heart a heart that has been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we do not do that, when we just kind of hope the wind catches our sails and we float in neutral, you may find that the flesh begins to take over. It wants to. 
And so the Christian life is fought, not in big sensational battles of victory and emotion and great tests of faith necessarily, but in little battles that happen every day. Little battles between your flesh and your spirit. Little ones, which as they add up, begin to shape you into the person that you're becoming. Those little battles are the important ones. Paul goes into verse 19 and 21 to then explain what it looks like for the Christian who chooses consciously to lose those battles, okay? Those desires of the flesh then manifest into the works of the flesh. The desires deep down in the heart of the flesh then get carried out in various ways. And he lists, you know, three different categories. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list. He's just giving us an example of a life that has gone awry. What it looks like when we continually lose the battle with the flesh. And he lists off uh, areas of sexuality. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, things against the body. He lists off idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is really just replacing, it's not like carving golden images like in Exodus, but for us, it's not, it's not worshiping necessarily bad things, it's usually good things. As Tim Keller would often uh, posit, it's taking good things and making them ultimate things in the place of God, that's idolatry. And so in that sense, it's replacing God from his rightful place of worship. Sorcery or pagan acts of worship is really anything that we do to try to manipulate God. So whether replacing God or manipulating God, this is an issue of worship directed against God. So we have sins against the body, we have sins against God, and then of course, we have sins against each other with enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. You can throw in there prejudice too if you want. Racism. And lastly, drunkenness and orgies. And Paul specifically here is referring to drunken orgies. This is uh, uh, specific instances of, uh, of drunken unrestraint. So whether to the body or to God or to each other, when really all of those are under the umbrella of sin against God, it's just giving us some categories to work with. This is what happens when we choose to give up on the fight against the flesh. Now, to curb these, Paul's listeners, to give you a little bit of background on Galatians, Paul's listeners had been in the habit of listening to a, a sect called the Judaizers. And they were caught between two different voices in trying to figure out what is the best way to follow Christ and what is the best way to battle the flesh. They were getting told two different uh, messages. One was a form of legalism and the other was just sheer unrestraint. Legalism is really just adding enough rules. If you add enough rules, if you add enough law, if you add enough parameters, you will circumvent those fleshly desires. So your way out of the gray area, your way out of this this overwhelming fleshly battle is just rules, just add more rules. If If you're struggling in the fight against sin, then you just need more rules. On the flip side of that, unrestraint would say, no, God's grace complements my fleshly desires because, you know, his grace uh, 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 covers a multitude of sins. I can just be myself and live authentically and live out of my own heart. Never mind that my heart is uh, deceitfully wicked and I'm a sinner. I'm just supposed to be authentic, 
know, so there's that far end of the spectrum. One side says more rules, one says less rules. See how surfacey this can end up being. Adding more rules only inflames the flesh. Does not give us freedom. Paul would say this in Romans. He would say, yeah, you know, in, in other words, I'm thankful for the law because it told me not to covet. And if it didn't tell me not to covet, I wouldn't know what coveting is. But now that I know what coveting is, sin has taken a hold of me and has used that to its own advantage. And now all I can think about is coveting. Rules are great in the sense that they point you to something else, but they have no power to get you to that point. Living unrestrained for the desires of the flesh is not true freedom either. Because if it's true that our flesh was meant to serve a heart that is reborn and to give glory to God, that is true freedom. For the heart to be run over by, the, uh, by unrestrained fleshly desires is not true freedom at all, but slavery. Those of you that are in, in caught in, within addictions and can't control your whole life, you, you know by personal experience this is not freedom, even though I'm doing what my body wants. You need more than rules. You need more than unrestrained libertinism. You need the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify those desires in the flesh. He uses the most emphatic way to say no. You know, in the Greek language, there's double negatives and it's actually okay. He's literally saying something of this nature. You will no not gratify the desires of the flesh. All the English majors are like, no! Grammatarians. But in the original languages, this was actually the, the most powerful and emphatic way of saying this will absolutely not happen. You cannot gratify the desires of the flesh as you are walking in the spirit. That's how it works. And so there is a tremendous note of optimism here. It's not like this neutral ground where Paul is a pessimist saying, you know, you got the spirit and you got the flesh and, you know, it's a free for all. Good luck. Saying the two are opposed to each other, but the spirit will win out if you walk by it. You've got the victory. You've got the victory. You're more than overcomers. You have everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness through Christ Jesus who has been given to you. So walk in that lifestyle. He goes on to say uh, three different terms. Listen to how emphatic Paul is about getting this point across. Walk by the Spirit in verse 16. Look at verse 18. Uh, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. Verse 25, those who are in step, uh, excuse me, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Walk by, led by, live by, in step with. All four of those terms are synonymous for this singular idea that Paul is trying to drill into our hearts. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you are a believer, so participate with what the Spirit is already wanting to do in your life. He's already doing it. He's already doing the work inside of you. Just step into the swell. No longer battle those things, but now battle the flesh and participate in what the Spirit is doing. This is a work of the Holy Spirit from day one. Everything that Paul is saying right here, the Spirit, his fruit, 
Notice also that he, he speaks first of the works of the flesh. In other words, those things that we do when we want to have our way. But he doesn't then jump from the works of the flesh to the works of the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit. He refers, first of all, to things that we do, to things that we absolutely cannot do. You see what he's doing? The works of the flesh are manifestations of what's in our heart. It's what we end up doing and carrying out with the body. The fruit of the spirit are not things that you do, but things that you are that are birthed out of the heart and into the body. You see what Paul is trying to do. He is circumventing our habits and our actions and our behaviors. And he's going straight to the origin, who we are. And he's saying unity to be touched in the innermost being by the power of the living God. This is a work of the spirit, not of man. God's desire in your spiritual maturity is to produce spiritual fruit with deep roots in the heart. This has to be born from above. This is a work of heaven on earth. Paul then goes on to explain a little bit about what that looks like, and then it gets exciting. Speaks about love. What's love? Love is, in the most simple way of putting it, doing something for someone else based on their intrinsic worth and not the need to get anything in return. No reciprocation, no gratitude, no pat on the back, not paying it forward. It's doing it simply because of their intrinsic worth without any need for reciprocation. Love, in a nutshell. Joy is delight in God that keeps you going. It's a sheer delight in God that kind of goes much deeper than the emotion of happiness. That's why you can't be happy and sad at the same time by definition. You can be sad and joyful at the same time because joy is not an emotion. It is a deep well of delight that can carry you when you are in fact sad. Peace is confidence in God's control. So much confidence that it keeps you from being swayed by overwhelming circumstances as they come. What is patience? Patience is the ability to endure difficult situations or difficult people without melting down. Kindness, kindness and goodness are, are almost synonymous in Paul's usage. That's, what is it? It's generosity, benevolence. It's a desire to help other people. Faithfulness, what's, faith, what's it look like if you're faithful? It looks like you being loyal. It means you're dependable. It means you follow through with your commitments. Because you often have to do some of those things against adversity, it might even include a little bit of courage. So we could throw courage into that too, faithfulness. How do you know if you're being faithful? Well, people trust you. You know you have faithfulness because people trust you because they know that that's who you are. Gentleness. Gentleness is the ability to be clear and firm without also being harsh. Self-control, ain't nobody not know what self-control is. <laughs> it's the one fruit in the line of fruit that we would all like to avoid, I'm sure. But if you've looked at all the other ones that are previous, they all have a note of self-control. So if you want to know if you have self-control, ask yourself if you have the other ones. 
Self-control is simply restraining yourself in necessary areas. These are supernatural works of God on the human soul. Now I say that, that they're supernatural because maybe some of you are looking at this list and you're like picking out the ones that you do have, you know? Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really patient, I'm not good, I'm not kind, I'm not peaceful, I don't have self-control, I'm not gentle, but I got some love. I love football, you know? Like, <laughs> you're like picking out the ones that you do love. And you might, you know, you might look around at some of these and you'd be like, you know, I'm, a, I'm faithful. If, if that's the description, I'm a faithful person. Like, I'm courageous, I'm a go-getter, I get stuff done, I handle my commitments, I make sure the projects are fulfilled, I go for it, you know what I mean? I'm not really a gentle person, you know, I kind of end up hurting people because I'm so courageous, you know, I'm such a go-getter that I end up steamrolling people. You're not really describing the gift of faithfulness there. You're describing a particular personality trait. You're a type A, maybe extroverted human that likes to get stuff done. And maybe in your worst moments, you're a steamroller, possibly a jerk. (laughs) Maybe flip-flop that and you would say, well, no, I'm not really faithful, but I'm gentle, you know? I care about other people. I care about how they feel. I'm often the one who thinks before he speaks, and I don't like, you know, I don't like hurting people's feelings, and people get that sense that I really care about them. But you know, not very faithful. I'm not very courageous. I don't, I don't, I'm not often a truth teller, and I have a hard time with confrontations. Well, you're not really describing the fruit of the spirit. You're just describing a particular temperament, right? Uh, Perhaps you're introverted. Or perhaps you're just afraid of confrontations or, or speaking to people. Maybe you're just afraid of certain things. Perhaps you really care more about what people think about you, and so you fail to confront them. You're describing a particular temperament, and maybe in your worst illustrations of that temperament and personality trait, you're not really being gentle, but maybe cowardly. So you don't say things that need to be said. Perhaps you would say, well, I'm kind. I like to help people. I love to be there for people, especially people who need help the most, but I lack patience. You might find down the road that deep down in the pillows of your heart, you, you really want stuff from people. You want them to appreciate you. You want them to thank you. You want their life to change, and it doesn't. Year in and year out, and you get disappointed and frustrated because you have no patience. Maybe out of that you grow disillusioned and perhaps burnt out. The list goes on and on and on. If you're picking out one or two, but you don't have the others, you're not describing the fruit of the Spirit. You're just describing personality traits. You're describing temperaments. You're not describing spiritual fruit. How do I know? Because when Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, he uses, the, uh, he uses a singular term. When he speaks of fruit, it's in the singular, not the plural. He's not speaking of the fruits of the Spirit as if there are seven or eight or nine and you just grab the ones that you can. But the one fruit of the Spirit that is made up of all of these. So you know you're growing in the fruit of the Spirit when all of them are growing at the same time. You can fake rules, you know? I've gotten pretty good at it. 
You can't fake the fruit of the Spirit. You can't fake, you can't fake the true work of the Spirit on the human heart. And we're describing perhaps temperaments, personality traits, and while all of those things are good, you were made that way by God, they themselves are not powerful enough to transform you. Your type A personality is not powerful enough to deal with your sin. Your introverted love for other people is not powerful enough to handle the deepest parts of your own heart. The fruit of the Spirit, however, is a supernatural change of the human person by an outside force. And the gospel declares from the very beginning when the prophets were screaming like a siren of the coming Messiah that this would in fact happen. I love the prophet Ezekiel. Hundreds of years before Jesus would allude to this very thing. He would say in chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, there it is, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Hundreds of years later, at the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself would deliver on that old promise. And as he died and rose again from the dead, he effectively delivered the kingdom of God to bear upon the human heart. He would allude to this in John 3, 3, when he told Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless you are born again by the Spirit inside, you will never see the kingdom of God. Fruit of the Spirit is the language of the kingdom. You wanna speak that language, you gotta be born again. In John chapter 16, verse seven through eight, he would say, nevertheless, after he died and, and, and rose from the dead, he said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So Jesus effectively opens the doors of the kingdom upon uh, broken beggars uh, in the world today, and then he sends, leaves us with the Holy Spirit to apply that kingdom to our hearts. And herein lies the reason for some of those two, those two cryptic lines in this verse about the law. If you were wondering what's the significance of Paul's usage of the law in verse 18 and 23 where he says if you walk by the spirit you're not under the law, what's that mean? What he's referring to is it's neither more rules or less rules that's gonna save you. It has to be about more than that. There is actually a third way that transcends the rules. It's to become a completely different person. It's not more rules, it's not less rules, it's becoming transformed into a new human, into a new humanity, a type of person who is able, not by the the powerlessness of rules, but by a renewed and transformed heart to look forward at the things that the rules point to and not only desire those things, but to choose them. It is a heart that has been set free to desire the kingdom of God in all of its beauty and glory, not just in the heavenly realm, but right here on earth. 
It is a life that has been transformed. All that the rules point to, that has been given to us. And it is in a sense, Paul's saying, by doing this, by tapping into that power, you go far beyond what the rules ever hoped to address. You're doing far more than just not murdering and not committing adultery and not cheating and not doing that. You are loving. You are living a life of faith. You are living a life of generosity. You are living a life of untapped freedom in the kingdom of God. Far beyond the parameter that the rules could ever hope to address, this is the kingdom life. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, and law ain't got nothing on you, bro. This is a different life. This is a different life. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot just bring that from heaven down. Thankfully, it gets brought in from heaven down to us. However, even though it is a work of the Holy Spirit, it also, in a bit of a paradox, is something that we participate in. You know that verse in uh, Philippians chapter two, I think it's uh, verse 12 and 13, we see that juxtaposed. God is working in you, right? It's God's work. To will and to work for his good pleasure. It's your work. It's God's work, you're working. Well, who is it? Is it God or is it me? Yeah. God is working... <laughs> God is working in you to work and will for his good pleasure. It is creating space for the Holy Spirit to rule and reign in your life and is participating in his work inside of you. This is where Paul lands on in verse 24 and where I end, where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. See, to even enter into this life, you must die to yourself and become one with Christ. This, is, this happens when you're born from above. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ comes down and he transforms you from the inside out and it ultimately starts with an identity change. That's what Paul is speaking about when he says being crucified with Christ. Galatians chapter two, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. I have already been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It starts off with a pure identification of who you belong to and who you are. I am no longer my own. I do not belong to Chris Lazo any longer. I belong to Jesus Christ and he in me. And as I walk, he walks through me. And as he walks, I'm directed by his walk. And as he speaks, I'm directed by his speak. And every moment of every day is meant to conform me more and more and more to the life of my Messiah. That's the Christian life. It happens at the moment you are born again. But as you continue in this life, you are continuing to grow in that identification. You continue, into, uh, you continue to grow in your identification with Christ on a regular basis. Love how Tim Keller put it. He said, anytime you find that sin, you're not just attacking the sin itself. You know, I do this and I do that, so I should not do this and I should not do that. Doesn't really work that way very easily, have you noticed? Keller would say, if we were to take uh, Paul at face value, we'd say, well, once you find that, that symptom, that sin, you should be discovering the why 
behind that sin? Why do I do the things that I do? What area in my heart desperately needs security or comfort or love? How am I redirecting my worship away from God to something else? Why am I doing the things that you do? And when you uncover the why, you begin to replace it little by little with Jesus Christ. As you redirect the flesh, the flesh becomes weak and the spirit takes over. And what a great motive to enter into the Christian life, right? Not don't do these things because God will get mad if you do, but don't do this because Christ has provided a better way for you to live. You don't have to be enslaved to those old sinful patterns anymore. You don't have to be caught up in that slavery and bondage anymore. You don't have to live in bondage to your own flesh and body anymore, to your habits, to your actions. You can live in the freedom and the power of the Spirit. That's what you are destined for. The fruit of the Spirit ends up being a taste of heaven. And for believers who long for it, it's a taste of things to come. Imagine a church where we are not scrutinizing each other based on the rules, but are growing in love, joy, and peace. Imagine families who, behind closed doors when no one can see, are not holding each other to these impossible, demanding standards, but are growing together by the power of the Holy Spirit and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Imagine a culture. Imagine the city of Santa Barbara with all of its unrestrained hedonism. We see it on a regular basis, right? Everything from solstice to lucidity to the Halloween practices in Isla Vista, it's everywhere. Unrestrained hedonism, that is our language of happiness. Just do it. Imagine instead of that being the standard of happiness, the standard is faith, hope, and love. Seems impossible, and it is. But everything that man counts as impossible is possible with God. And it is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. The good news is the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to us. Given through the death and resurrection of Jesus and we can have all that he supplies. And what's more, we can have him. On this adventure, following Jesus into his kingdom. Now you may daily encounter those fleshly impulses. Don't feel guilty about that. That's a normal Christian life. And each impulse that you experience is an opportunity to fight. It's an opportunity to battle your old life. The saying goes, you know you're growing when you're battling. You know you're not growing when you've, you've stopped, you've given up. Don't give up. You're gonna struggle. This life includes the struggle. You're not alone in it, and it's not abnormal. It is a struggle. And there will be times that you will mess up in the struggle. And there will be times where you choose the flesh rather than the spirit. But God is gracious towards you. And Jesus is still present with you. And Jesus will not abandon you and he will not rob you of the Holy Spirit because you messed up. He will be with you. I will be with you always, lo, until the end of the age, Jesus promises us. And he will maintain his promises. 
and the Holy Spirit in that moment of failure will continue to prod you and empower you. And as you continue to get up and follow the leadings of the Spirit, you're gonna notice this over time. The battle with the flesh gets a little bit weaker than it used to be. Just a little bit. And the next day it gets a little bit weaker. A little bit weaker. And you turn around and unbeknownst to you, you recognize, wow, I... I ordinarily would have just flown into a fit of rage because of what that person did, but I actually didn't. I just only cussed a little bit, you know. <laughs> and little by little, there's this progress. It's not human progress. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. And in that moment, I want you to stop, turn your eyes to heaven and thank your God. Because in that moment, when you taste the fruit of the Spirit, you are in that situation getting a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming to bear on your present experience. It means you're not alone. God is with you. And he will be. And he aims to make you just like him. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come out this morning. I'm gonna pray. If you have the need for more power in your life to follow Christ, ask him for it. Maybe you don't know what to ask him for, you can ask the prayer teams to the right and to the left. You might not be born again, that might be a place to start. If you don't know Jesus, you need to be born again. Jesus said it himself, ask and you shall receive. Maybe you've been born again, you've been a Christian for 30 years, but you've never understood power. You might need to be baptized in the Spirit. You might need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you in such a way that you leave this building with a power you've never sensed before in your life. Come and have hands laid on you and be anointed with oil and you will experience that power. Whatever you do, don't leave without an encounter. God wants to encounter you. Heavenly Father, have your way with us in Jesus' name. You are the gardener, we are the pasture. May we be a church filled with the fruit of heaven. So ripe and so fragrant that it draws the city of Santa Barbara to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.